Hey guys, what's going on? My name is Dr. Colin Zhu, and thank you so much for being here with us. This is the Thrive Bites podcast, and welcome to season five. Here we talk about three things, plant-powered living, enhancing emotional resilience, and creating a thriving mindset. And I interview the most passionate guests here, ranging from physicians to coaches to dietitians to entrepreneurs. And my hope is to give you really informative and high-valued conversations. So please Follow us here on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and wherever you hear your podcasts. Come on in, and I can't wait to see you inside. Hey guys, welcome to the last episode of the season, season five. This is officially episode 150th, and we couldn't have done it without you guys. I am so, 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 so stoked for this episode. I am joined by Dr. Michael Clapper, and today we are commemorating his 50 years of being in medicine and practicing medicine. So it is a wonderful, wonderful interview on location live. He is a vegan educator, a well-sought-out speaker and clinician, and just an overall, overall good heart and soul. So you don't want to miss this. And uh, thank you again for your support over the years for Thrive Bites podcast. And I'm Dr. Zhu. And let's get to the episode. Guys, welcome to uh, the Thrive Bites uh, podcast. Um, I am super, super excited to be <laughs> sitting next to a living legend. <laughs> so this is Dr. Michael Clapper, and uh, we are here on location in Palm Desert, Palm Springs, Palm Desert, and we're at the Plantrition Project. So I was able to be fortunate enough to grab him aside and uh, have a very, very special episode to commemorate your 50 years of practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. So. So, so super stoked about that. So before I start, I want to introduce you to everyone. So Dr. Michael Clapper, we can spend a whole episode <laughs> just talking about his resume, but he's a gifted clinician. He's a internationally recognized teacher and sought after thought leader and speaker on diet and health. He's the author of Vegan Nutrition, Pure and Simple. No longer in print. I don't think people can get copies, right? No, Not really. No, no. no. Okay. And has produced numerous health videos, webinars, and dozens of articles for both scientific journals and the popular press. He's contributed to making two PBS uh, television programs, Food for Thought, and the award-winning movie Died for a New America. He originally graduated from the University of Illinois College of Medicine in 1972, served as director of Institute of Nutrition, educational research from 92 to 2015, and he has practiced acute uh, medicine in New Zealand for three years from 2009 through 2018 and served on staff for the True North Health Center. He's a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and he's also the advisory on serves on the advisory board for the Plantation Project and the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. So thank you so much for everything you've done, uh, for spending time out, and uh, I can't wait to you know talk about you know, your, your career thus far, you have light years ahead. (laughs) So I'm really, really excited. So my first question to you is, um, what does it mean to practice for 50 years in medicine? What does that mean to you? Um, you know, after all this time? 
Oh my, a uh, word certainly like um, humbling uh, to have served so many people over these decades. When I think of all the medical adventures that you know, I can run in my head there, the, the babies delivered, the middle of the night tracheostomies and uh, the acute care uh, that I gave in many situations, uh, certainly that's a whole uh, medical epic. Uh, but it's all so stunning and amazing how quickly it went by. I can't believe it. I was just, I was just a young uh, surgical resident, an anesthesia resident, you know, uh, just yesterday it seemed. And you know, to all the viewers out there, I treasure every day. They go by so fast. My dad's told me yeah, how fast it goes by. And when you're a kid, you know, time crawls. But oh, was he right. And. Uh, and how much medicine has changed. You know, when I came into medicine, I graduated in 1972, there were no computers. Uh, there was no DNA analysis. There were no MRI scanners or CT scanners. I watched all these innovations come in. Medicine's so transformed. And then the internet comes in and, and, and the patients are now so much more educated, so much more sophisticated in their questions. So it's been a constant challenge for me to, to recast myself as you know, all physicians have to deal with now, to keep up with the changes and see how I can serve best. And yet I'm an old time journeyman clinician. I, I love uh, touching patients and listening to hearts and feeling abdomens and feeling pulses. And uh, I have such reverence for the body and for the practice of medicine. Uh, that that's only grown uh, as far as uh, the, the fundamentals that stay true. As, and it's about serving people, it's about love, it's about, uh, about serving the higher good. So uh, a lot has changed, a lot hasn't changed. And I'm just, I'm standing, uh, you know, if you're sitting on the railroad track on your highway and a big bus goes by or a big train goes by, phew, what was that, you know? Yeah, I got a little bit of that feeling about my career as well. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it can be a blur and you uh -huh. do your best to be as present and mindful as much as possible. You know, mm -hmm. you have these wonderful, I feel like, you know, with the internet and the social media age, we can be more distractful and noisy. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, just being uh, present can be, it's already a separate challenge, right. you know? So mm -hmm. um, for you, going back to the beginning a little bit, um, what was the moment for you that sparked, um, you know, for you to say, you know what, let me embark on this journey for medicine. You know, what was it that, what was that pivotal moment for you? Oh, I've known I wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid, without question. Um, uh, I <clears throat> spent my first uh, 16 summers on my uncle's dairy farm in northern Wisconsin with my cousins and my brother. And I was the kid who wanted everybody to be okay. You know, if someone <laughs> fell down, are you all right? And uh, how can we help? If there was an injured animal um, that uh, needed help, uh, we'd bind up the legs of a sheep that fell and, and hurt itself. Um, so I was always that kid who wanted everything to be okay. And back on uh, TV, the, uh, the, the heroes to me were the doctors, uh, whether it was Marcus Welby or Dr. Kildare or on Gunsmoke old Doc Adams up in his, <laughs> his office there, patching up that Dylan there. And my love of biology, on those summers on the farm, the natural world was so present. The big thunderstorms would roll through, the animals were everywhere, from the foxes and frogs in the field to the cows and the, and the sheep and the mink that we had on the farm. and. 
the, the, the forces of nature, well, the water always runs downhill and the uh, winds well, you know, came from the west uh, carrying in the thunderstorms. And I just got such a feel for the natural world that uh, I couldn't wait to get into biology class in high school because mm. the biological sciences made so much sense. So between my desire to, uh, uh, to, for, to patch everybody up and my love of biology, uh, there was no question uh, that I was going to be a physician. My father was a dentist, and uh, I thought I gave it two seconds, but I watched how he came home every night so tired, standing out next to that dental chair for 14 hours a day. I knew I didn't want to do that, uh, but I knew I was going to go. You don't want to do teeth? Uh, uh, but I loved the rest of the body too much, so, um, so it was ordained. I was going to be a physician from way back. Good, good, good. Any other physicians in your uh, family lineage? No, my brother was a biology teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was a dentist. And uh, so we had the, this, uh, like, uh, musicians or mathematicians that seemed to run in families. Uh, the biological sciences ran in our family, and uh, I became a physician. Nice, nice. I remember my biology lab with um, cutting open of the frog and uh, studying anatomy and... Uh, uh, at first, I was like, oh, man, this is sad, but, you know, I guess it had to be done, um, you know, so, I mean, it, it's always, it's always uh, heartfelt, you know, to be, I didn't grow up on a, uh, on a farm, and, you know, we only had, like, non-furry pets growing up, so, but I had love, you know, for animals, so, mm -hmm. um, I remember, you know, part of your bio, you, you, you talked about the love for these animals, what does that mean? growing up through that time period with those experiences comparatively to you know what we're seeing now as a society as a planet like how does that you know dishearten you in some way where our current uh, you know uh, place are at oh my um so much in that question the uh, the natural world was very present on the farm, including death. Uh, we would find dead animals, but uh, I chopped the heads off chickens. I uh, uh, remember the old dairy cows that my uncle would call the butcher guy who would come and shoot the cow on the head mm -hmm. and butcher them. And I realized that to put meat on the table requires death, requires you know, suffering of animals. And each of the animals, they are beings. They, uh, we had a big flock of chickens, mm. uh, and I would sit down next to the barn, and they'd come on over, they'd jump up in the lamp, they, they'd love to be <laughs> snuggled like this, and each one had a personality. Right? Yeah, some, yeah. Were, some were very shy, some were very curious, and, I, I, and the cows as well, they had big sad eyes. Um, I realized what, what magnificent big creatures the, these are, and uh, they've been given this lot to live their lives out in that body. Yeah. And so my respect and reverence for them as beings really grew, but I wasn't able to reconcile the, the factor of death involved, it's so much so that like everybody, we just compartmentalize it, and just, it's just the way it is. But the most painful auditory memory I have in my, uh, my store is the sound of a mother cow mm. locked up in a stanchion in the barn. She just had a baby, just gave birth, and her calf is in the veal pen 10 yards down, uh, down in the barn, and she is bellowing the most heart-rending, soul-tearing moves and mm. cries hour after hour. It would go on day and night, three days, four days. Five. I would ask my little eight-year-old kid, I asked my mother, what, what's happening? 
Well, uh, she's crying for her baby. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, where's the baby? Oh, in the pen. We're taking care of it. Okay. And what did I know? Uh, and now I know the inherent cruelty that's involved in every drop of milk and every piece of cheese and container of yogurt. Uh, you must take the calf away from its mother. And and when milking the cows when I was older, I would, they would be in the stanchion and big tears would be going down their, their cheeks. And I, and I never understood it. Now I realized they were all new mothers who just had their babies taken away. And uh, there's a sadness in the dairy barn that I still can feel. Mm. And uh, so I just I became aware of it. But then, as... Uh, uh, you know, I just ignored it and ate meat and burgers and hot sauce mm-hmm. like everybody else. You had to compartmentalize uh, it. Oh, you have to, the down comes the iron yeah. curtain, and don't want to think about that, just the way it is. And boy, that steak tastes good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, in the mid-1980s, um, ran into a book called Diet for New America by John Robbins, and he laid out the reality of factory farming. And as I as I read that, those chapters, you know, brick after brick after brick fell into place. Now I realized what I was seeing on the farm, and I and I was aware. I, I'm an avid backpacker, but uh, you don't drink out any streams if there might be cattle up there, because um, there's going to be jarring yeah, in the water. Downstream, yeah. And I realized that's how much our, the the livestock industry permeates. Uh, so much of our problems, uh, environmental, um, uh, certainly in the, in the waters, etc. But uh, I had made that because we are paying for it with our, every time we buy a burger or buy eat a ste- order a steak, you're paying for that. Uh, to, you, you, we are driving it. It's not the livestock industry's fault per se, but we're paying them to do it. And then the whole panoply becomes uh, evident at that point. And it's how can you not be appalled and yeah. sad? And you read the numbers as we speak tonight the hundreds of millions of chickens and pigs and cows in those anonymous sheds. Out, yeah. You drive through the countryside on the hillside, yeah. you see those aluminum sheds, and you know what's happening in there the misery, yeah. the suffering that's going on. So we can eat a burger for two dollars and uh, you know, get a bucket full of finger-looking good chicken, and so um, so of course there's a sadness and it kindled a fire in me. I, I want those animals. I ordered those sheds. I, I want us to be a plant-eating society for so many reasons, but high up on the list is let's stop make those animals suffer. And um, so I'm all for the plant-based burgers and anything that gets those animals out of those sheds. It's yeah. time for that to end. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, recently in California, you know, they just passed a, a bill to kind of end, you know, cru- uh, cruelty for um, uh, testing animals uh, really? as well. Yeah, hey, well, that's a step. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a huge step, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, just it, it's just you don't you don't need it. You know, there's nothing to really back that up that we really need it. You know, um, and I think the there's a big disconnect. Um, of you know because you had that experience of the farm mm-hmm. you know living off the land having your uncle and being in Wisconsin mm-hmm. a lot of Americans 
don't have that experience and I think when you're missing that experience you you know you don't see the middle part of it right. you know what I'm saying yeah. um, you know just ran, you know just quick statistics 1960 to 2016 there was a 215% increase of chickens consumed right and that produces a lot more feces a lot more runoffs and you know and you know think about the communities that actually live around oh, yeah. The CAFOs, the concentrated animal feeding uh, organizations and, and or operations, and uh, it's really disheartening. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's too much. Would you say that experience plus the book you read? Can you give us another experience or another light bulb that made you say? Because you did eat meat for a little bit. Oh, time. absolutely. What other what other um, I guess event or book or person made you gravitate and say like you know what? I'm just gonna go all plant-based or all vegan and not go, not look in the rearview mirror anymore. Uh, well, it happened um, in 1981. I was a I was a resident in anesthesiology in Vancouver, and um, I had. Well, let me take it a further step back. Uh, during my fourth year of med school at the U of I. I would spend my Saturday nights um, not dating pretty girls. I was in the trauma <laughs> unit at Big Bad Old Cook County Hospital in Chicago. And, uh, and I, would, I would observe and help out as I could. And Saturday night in the trauma unit at County, you see the worst of what humans do to each other. And the shotgun blast and the knife wounds and the Saturday night specials. I would leave there Sunday morning just shaking with mm -hmm. the violence I had seen. And I vowed... If I couldn't rid the world of violence, I would at least get it out of my own life. And so I started making a serious uh, exploration of living a life of nonviolence. Uh, mm. There's this term, ahimsa, for that. And I read uh, Satchitananda and Mahatma Gandhi and the Indian saints about living a life of nonviolence. It made sense. I'd see the word vegetarian go by. Yes, yeah, that would be a good thing, too. <laughs> but I, I didn't act on it until I was a third year anesthesia resident in Vancouver and I'm out for dinner with a, uh, with a fellow resident. And, uh, and I'm over dinner, I'm pontificating about leading a life of nonviolence while I'm polishing off a T-bone steak at the local Kagan Cleaver Steakhouse. And John looks at me with great compassion and says, that's all very nice, Michael. But if you'd like to get rid of the violence in your life, you might want to start with that piece of meat on your plate because in satisfying your desire for the taste of flesh in your mouth, you are paying for the death of that animal and for the next one in line at the slaughterhouse. Mm -hmm. Well, as soon as he said that, all the old rationales leaped into my mind. Well, the animal's dead already. That's what they mm -hmm. raised them for. Uh, but before I could get the words out of my mouth, the little voice on my shoulder said, you know, He's right. Mm -hmm. He's right. And when I went up to pay for the dinner, I felt complicit in a crime because I know those beautiful animals. I know I didn't want to kill a cow. Yeah. And here I am eating its flesh. And, it, it, and I felt complicit in a crime when I paid for the dinner. And it, and it just sat in my stomach there. Mm -hmm. And that was the last piece of red meat I ate for sure. And, um, and then... Uh, a couple uh, a couple weeks later, I'm in the uh, I'm getting dressed to go to work, and <clears throat> I'm putting on my shoes. And uh, I had been raised in a Jewish household after World War II, and I had seen the pictures of the Holocaust and the and the lampshades made out of the skins of the Jews. And here I am putting on the skins of these animals that we are mm -hmm. slaughtering. 
and it felt cadaverous, and mm. uh, I just couldn't do it. I went out and in the backyard, and I dug a hole, and I put my leather shoes in there, my leather wallet, my leather belt, come filled in the hole, apologized to the animals, mm. and the era of hemp wallets and fiber, fabric belts mm. began. And I mentioned that to a um, uh, to a friend of mine several weeks later, and she said, I told her what happened. She said, oh, you become a vegan. And I had I'd never even heard the word, but... Mm. Okay, guess I'm there <laughs> now. But it just felt better. Yeah. And so my heart, it was a call of the heart and, and of, of integrity and uh, uh, being congruent with my higher values. Awesome, awesome. Over these decades, um, if you could cite like one or two examples of challenges or obstacles as being a medical profession, working in the plant-based field, being a um, ethical vegan, right? Um, if you can cite a couple of challenges, how were you able to get through that? And on a you know bird's eye view, how do you keep going? You know, as a medical professional, you know, through these decades, because I know you know in my very short you know professional career, it's been hard. You know, um, it seems daunting. Healthcare system with the pandemic, you know, has raised up the cracks, raised up, you know, everything that's been not, you know, addressed. I can only imagine how much harder it was before, but I would like for you to share, you know, a couple of examples of obstacles and, you know, what really kept you going through those, you know, challenges and ultimately to a beautiful, you know, five decade, you know, career. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the maturity to grasp the world as it is. Um, this is not a vegan world. Uh, I cannot uh, assume there'll be a golden uh, goal of perfection uh, to live in a vegan world. Eventually it'd be nice to get there, but it isn't. And I have to practice medicine in a non-vegan world. I know very well when a patient uh, uh, has an infection anywhere in the body, and I prescribe antibiotics. Two things: if it's a, if it's a capsule, uh, it's made of gelatin, and that just doesn't come in any other form. And second, I know very well every one of these drugs has been tested on no end of rabbits and mice and, and rats who love their life as much as I do, and we've done terrible things to them. And yet, I've got a patient in front of me suffering with 104 fever and shaking chills from their pneumonia. Um, they're going to need uh, antibiotics uh, or they're going to die. And um, so this is, it's, a, uh, it's a non-vegan modality we're practicing in. But the ultimate goal is ultimately vegan, to save a life. You know, there's no more vegan mm. act than that, to save the life of your patient. Uh, but I know there's this cost, this invisible cost in the background. And all I can do, and it's a flimsy rationale, but I have to say, you know, knowing the work I'm doing to make it a more vegan world, to get all those animals out of the factory farms and out of the labs, um, to say the animals will understand. You know, they, they have to. Of all the people that are mindlessly eating them and using uh, animal products, uh, you know, the few times I have to do it, you know, I, I often, in my, just in my heart, I just apologize to the animals, I just mm -hmm. got to do this. And so far, the animals have been relatively understanding, and uh, the, the medicines have worked, and uh, I haven't had too many angry rabbits. Now, <laughs> the door. They call you like, hey, Dr. Hey, you're, doing, you're doing a good job, you're doing a good job. Yeah, you yeah, uh, <laughs> hey, uh, you, uh, you're selling us out. 
So you do the best you can and yeah. to, to make it a more vegan world. And, and so I try and make up for it. If I'm eating with my friends, they see I ordered the vegan meal, the, the spaghetti with the vegetables instead of the meatballs. And I try and make up for it in other ways by living a vegan life publicly in front of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if I can influence even one of them to make better choices, because it's really the food we're eating more than the medical uh, use of them. Uh, that really inflicts the greatest, uh, greatest, harm. Uh, greatest harm on the animals. So if I can get my colleagues to stop eating them, uh, I'll do the best I can as far as uh, using them in uh, these various medical modalities. Yeah, yeah. Have you had any, um, uh, I'm sure you have, you know, in terms of like just naysayers, in terms mm-hmm. of the medical colleagues just mm-hmm. saying, just don't do it at all. You know, why go against the grain? Why be so unconventional? Um, I can only imagine, um, you know, those times just being so hard, you know, it's just like a huge wall that you have to traverse, you know, did you ever had, um, you know, just really, I, I hope you didn't get violent attacks, right. but just like these verbal, right. you know, attacks. Right. Yes, they're out there and less so now, I must admit, and it has a lot to do with uh, uh, all the good communicators, you know, yourself included, who get, who's who've been permeating the zeitgeist out there with the uh, whole idea of living gently on the planet. Uh, and, uh, and even in medicine, Dr. Neil Barnard and his Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine trying to, uh, you know, the truth of, of being kind to animals is so powerful that uh, the, my colleagues say, well, we've got to experiment on animals uh, because that's the only way we can tell how the drugs work. But even there, there's a, now there's a computer chip that, that is so much more reliable and predictable than the animal's response, the, the lab on a chip, the liver on a chip, the lung on a chip. Uh, even, even, you know, there, there's such a validation that we do not have to keep exploiting these innocent creatures. Uh, so, so knowing that, that science, uh, inadvertently, I'm sure they're not doing it out of compassion, but science as it marches on is, is going to eliminate the animals from, from that uh, uh, process, which is just wonderful. And my colleagues, um, they were much more cynical in the 80s, much more aggressive, mm. um, much less so now. Uh, they're, they're aware of the, uh, of the toll that our meat-based diet is inflicting, even if they, they keep eating it themselves. And, um, and there's just a greater understanding. A lot of the resistance has fallen away. A lot of the aggressiveness has fallen away. You know, for that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I appreciate, you know, uh, pioneering through those times. So, you know, we work in a um, less aggressive environment. You know, it's aggressive yeah. in different ways, right. but, yeah. you know, less aggressive in those ways. You know, Indeed. it makes, it paves the way. So I appreciate that. But I was known as the nuts and berries doctor. Yeah. The nuts and yeah. berries doctor? <laughs> So the doctor's lounges were set up the same, right? Yeah, and so you just bring like a Tupperware, Tupperware. how did you do it? Exactly. <laughs> I bring my lunch and uh, on the table I always have snacks instead of donuts. I always get uh, some nuts and, uh, and uh, dried fruits, etc. And uh, But they knew the counseling I was giving my patients was vegan counseling. Mm-hmm. And I would get back at the front office and the front desk when the patients would leave, they would come into the reception. It got out that I was doing plant-based counseling. But uh, nobody really, they, they made a few snickery comments about it, but uh, unfortunately my, uh, uh, my practice wasn't too aggressive. That's good, that's good. 
Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey guys, if you are interested in having a consultation with me and actually see me one-on-one, um, the Chef Doc Lifestyle Medicine uh, practice has partnered with Plant-Based Telehealth and uh, we offer uh, lifestyle medicine consultations. So you'll be able to see me one-on-one and uh, I can go over your health history and seeing what we can do to fill in the gaps. Uh, we can talk about your physical health, anything from food to lifestyle to diet to setting up your kitchen to cooking preparation to grocery shopping to your mental health. Um, I think it's important that we build our emotional resilience to talking about your sleep and how to stay hydrated and what are the best uh, medicines if necessary, what are the best supplementations if necessary. And we do all this in a very concise manner and it's a conversation. I take the time out to listen. I take the time out to really understand you from the ground up and to look at all aspects um, of your physical, emotional, and mental health. And um, please, you know, uh, drop me a line, schedule an appointment if you want to see me one-on-one. And um, I am very, very looking forward to learning more about you. And again, thank you so much for visiting uh, here uh, at The Chef Doc. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. So my next question is, if you're looking at your uh, five decades, do you feel like the plant-based movement, lifestyle medicine, the direction we're heading right now, do you feel like the needle has been moved, you know, um, at all? If it's not, you know, what else do we need to do? Uh, the question is, yo, has that needle moved? It has made a quantum leap um, mm-hmm. that it's becoming so blatantly obvious that Americans are eating themselves to death and drinking themselves to death and smoking themselves to death. These are lifestyle uh, issues, lifestyle diseases. And I was aware of that, but I felt, again, alone. And how do, how do I begin to, uh, uh, to uh, approach this? And then I saw, about 10, 10, 15 years ago, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. As soon as I saw that name, I said, yes, <laughs> that's it. Somebody finally crystallized, yes, that's what's needed. And then the floodgates opened when I saw that. I joined immediately and have been just celebrating all the yeah. wonderful offerings that organization is, uh, is making available to help people with their lifestyle issues. And they're even supportive of plant-based nutrition. Absolutely, the fact that ACLM exists and that it's uh, being promulgated as, as it is uh, is extremely reassuring. The needle has certainly moved. Because back in the 1970s and 80s, when I entered, it was uh, you know you find the doctors uh, drinking whiskey and eating burgers themselves, and uh, now we're now it's officially not a good idea to do that. We can do better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know what the experience of of you know. So um, I remember reading uh, the first. Um, uh, Surgeon General making mm-hmm. the statement about smoking, you know, having the ill effects. And before that actually happened, the first address that smoking was not great, up to 6,000, you know, peer reviewed, you know, so, yeah, 
before that, before he actually, you know, uttered those words, and I don't have the experience of, you know, being, I, I think my grandfather, my, my dad's dad, he worked in, you know, uh, rural hospitals um, as an internist, and, um, you know, they smoked in the wards. Absolutely. I don't know what that experience is, you know, uh, like, um, and now diet has almost replaced you know that type of inflammatory burden mm -hmm. um you know onto us and we just have to kind of s almost switch yes exactly uh i remember that i'm old enough uh, the year is 1964 the surgeon general was named luther terry and luther terry i remember him on tv on black and white tv said we have now a conclusive proof that uh smoking causes cancer and we really need to uh, uh change our habits and as you mentioned, the 6,000 studies finally brought him to that point of certainty. And as Dr. Michael Greger reminds us, you would think after the first 5,000 studies <laughs> that they would have been ready to make the pronouncement. But after the 6,000 in our profession. But as you say, it's been stunning. When I grew up, and everybody smoked. You get on an airplane, there was the smoking section and the non-smoking section. And so and said that the non-smoking section on the airplane was like the non-chlorine part of the swimming pool. Were <laughs> uh, you kidding? And I, at the end of the flight, you know, you hear everybody's coughing. And, uh, and now nobody smokes. Yeah. Look, look at this profound change. Well, of course, that's what we need to do with flesh eating at this point. Yeah. And, uh, and I've heard like, medical students saying that, you know, if you're a group of you sitting around a meeting room and one of you pulls out a pack of Marlboros you know, and lights up, what would you guys all say? Wouldn't you turn and say, all right, man, are you still doing that? Is this day and age still doing that? Yeah. Well, we got to get to the point where someone orders a cheeseburger or a steak. Man, are you still eating that stuff? You know, don't you know what that does to your body and the planet? Um, so, and we're going to get there if, if the world holds together and, and the seas don't rise too high. Uh, we're, we're eventually going to get there. The uh, uh, because the fact that even you know Tyson chicken, I thought they're all dabbling into plant-based. Yeah, plant -based. you were mentioning no. before the McDonald's, the KFC, yeah. they're dabbling in some it's vegan not, options. They so. see the handwriting on the wall. It's going to be fade into a bad dream. The whole factory yeah. farming thing. Twenty years from now, you know, we used to keep, keep animals by the hundreds of millions and cut their throats. We used to do that. Oh, can't believe that, you know. And that's that's the day we're all working for. So uh, yes, uh, we're trying to make um, meat eating as uncool as smoking, and we're slowly getting there. Yeah, yeah. What do you think makes it different? Is it because you know cigarettes is like one you know entity, whereas food is just so many different variables. You have style, you have technique of cooking. Um, you know, you have different food, like what makes it different that, you know, we could do it with smoking, right. you know, in terms of a public health, um, you know, um, uh, advocacy, but food is a little bit harder, you oh, know, it's, so, and, and, and why is that? Oh, it's think? a lot harder. Um, one, everybody eats, not everybody smokes, but everybody eats and, uh, and eating, you know, has this deep visceral effect, of course, from flavor and satiety and yeah. the abolishing of hunger. But it has this huge symbolic and psychological effect. It's the food mommy gave us. And dad always used to make pancakes on Sunday. And, and mommy used to always make fried chicken uh, from the fryer there. And uh, these are very powerful connections that get in, uh, laid down, imprinted in us uh, from a young age. And then to be told your mother was wrong and your father was wrong and uh, that was bad, they were hurting you. 
No one wants to hear that. Yeah. And so there's a resistance against that. But I love that taste of that biting into that cheeseburger and the feel of salty, sweet, sugary. The, 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 uh, you're not going to take that away from me. And in fact, now one of the greatest threats that the uh, the folks who don't think the global warming is an issue um, or they're afraid of the acting, they're going to come and take away your hamburgers and take your hamburger away from you. And, and that gets the biggest rise out of people. Why is that so potent and so powerful? Mm-hmm. Because there's all sorts of, uh, uh, again, emotional, visceral, and political ramifications to that. So it's a huge boulder that we have to move, but there's no choice to keep on yeah. pushing on it. Uh, we got to yeah. move it to the point where it becomes something we used to do. You know, right. I, you know we, uh, people say, how can you see a day when there's no more meat? Well, lots of things we used to, we used to harpoon whales in the head, we don't yeah. do that anymore. We used to buy and sell black people, we don't do that anymore. Uh, factory farming, you know, cutting the throats of animals, hopefully will become one of those things, we don't, do, we don't do that anymore, we saw the horror of it. So, you know, it's a matter of, of doing that figure ground reversal. Sh- shifting that, that paradigm. Exactly, right, so that's what we're trying to do. And the, and the real frontier is communication now. It's education of the public. We've got enough medical studies, and we know what it does. So now it's a matter of just educating and changing the zeitgeist to to make it comfortable for people to evolve their diets instead right. of being the outlier. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's not just about us. It affects everyone. Yeah, it affects everything and everyone, whether you realize it or not. And absolutely. like you said, it's really about the education to let people know that, hey, we're all connected. It's like this. One of my favorite analogies is a web. It's a spider web. You know, if you push on, you know, one um, point, it gets reverberated on the other side. Yeah, and so it's similar. You know, yeah, human beings were connected in that way and living beings, you know, like you mentioned, are connected in that way. So it's about continuing that process. So looking ahead into the future, what would you like to see more in terms of the medical side, medical industry, and um, on the reflexive, what would you like to see in terms of the food industry to make changes looking ahead? What more can we do? Oh my, Uh, someone wiser than me said uh, we have a uh, a food industry that knows nothing about health and a health industry that knows nothing about food. Wendell Barrett. Wendell Barrett, thank you. And, uh, and we need to totally reverse those. That we, you know, we want a, a, a health industry that knows very much about food. Because yeah, as you know, food, uh, you know, at this point, the standard diet based on meats and dairies and oils and refined foods, etc., it damages us in so many ways, it clogs our arteries, our blood pressure, diabetes, etc. You know the litany well. And a plant-based diet will reverse it. And, and But these diseases shouldn't happen in the first place. You raise a child on a plant-based diet, their arteries will never clog, they're never going to get obese, there's no reason they should develop type 2 diabetes. They should grow up to lean, healthy, active people for 100 years of lifespan. And so to have a food industry that promotes that uh, to make healthy plant-based eating cheap and available uh, would would save the world on, on a lot of levels and um, and the medical industry would certainly follow that along to uh, uh, to validate and corroborate this and uh, and employ plant-based healing techniques and to bring it to just about every clinical situ- uh, situation you encounter 
because you pick a disease when it comes to non-communicable diseases that inflict so much suffering and expense upon our society. The vast majority are food-related, and that's where it starts. So, uh, so much would happen for the better if we uh, make this plant-based transition. So, for both the food industry and the medical industry, um, getting a plant-based society is, is square one. I think, um, you know, we're at a lovely, you know, conference and, um, you know, it's almost like we need these major industry leaders to come at the same table yes, to actually literally. talk. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, it's a business, right? A business. Healthcare is a business. Food industry is a business. It's all about business in the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I understand that, you know, quarterly reports, profits and things like that. But at the end of the day, it affects, you know, everyone down around mm -hmm. the table. So you could still, I am firm believe that you can still be successful, but at the same time, minimize your impact and footprint on, um, you know, on uh, and, and reduce the costs. Oh, absolutely. The We've got the pyramid upside down as far as the way the money is flowing. For every heart attack not that doesn't happen, uh, the for every CEO that, of a company that doesn't go down with a heart attack, uh, he stays in place, his company stays in place and continues to pay taxes to benefit society. Um, the money that would be saved in coronary bypass is not done, ICU beds not occupied, that all the CTs and the scans that are, are done for band-aid medicine at this point, that money could be used to, to reshape our whole society, to, uh, to send kids to college, put internet in everybody's yeah. house, pay out the national debt. There's so much you could do with that yeah. money. Ultimately, as noble as our profession is, um, it's a bit of a rat hole uh, for our resources. Uh, if I can tell a little story, mm -hmm. um, uh, there's an analogy uh, uh, that a, uh, uh, there was a small little village, uh, everybody knows everybody, and one uh, Sunday morning, the, the uh, morning stillness is uh, shattered by the sound of breaking glass. Everybody runs out in the central square, and there's a 16-year-old kid, town bully, uh, with a smirk on his face, and, uh, and um, standing in front of the bakery, and he clearly had just thrown a big rock uh, through the bakery uh, pane glass window. And the people are angry, the boys are uh, uh, no good, uh, uh, delinquent, and uh, let's punish him. And um, the head of the ch Chamber of Commerce steps forward and said, no, the boy's a hero, actually. Because of what he did, the glazer in town who makes who pane glass window, he's going to make some money here, and he'll have money to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to support our economy here. It was a good thing that he did. So uh, the boy's a hero. And with that, the head of the economics department, the local college, does for it. Doesn't work like that. He said, "Yes, it's true. The glazer's going to make three hundred bucks for the uh, uh, for his work." But um, but the baker inside there, his son's getting married, and he and he wanted to give his son a new suit to be to uh, get married in, and so he had saved up three hundred dollars to give to the tailor to make his son a new suit. Well, now he's got to use that money to um, to fix the window. The tailor is out the three hundred dollars. The the boy, the son, is out a new suit. And when it's all said and done, and the new glasses put in, what do we got? 
right back where we started. Nothing has been gained by ours and our little community here. Um, do not mistake the circulation of money for the creation of wealth. They are two different things here. And uh, war is a, uh, we spend all this money um, for what? Both that forth and we see in, in Ukraine what, what, what really happens. Yeah. Uh, it's a black hole to pour your money into, into military end of it. Well, in a way, medicine the same way, to, uh, to have someone who's got all clogged up arteries and you do a bypass procedure on him and you rest on the table yeah. and you resuscitate him and he gets a post-op wound infection and dehiscence and pneumonia and he limps out of the hospital three months later after a million dollar in bills to do what? To, to go to the fast food restaurant and eat more burgers and, and buffalo wings. What, what are we? It's a black hole. We're pouring our money down here. Uh, we, we really need to see that that, that kind of Band-Aid medicine is, is a waste here. We, we need to get people healthy, and that comes uh, from what people are eating and the food that's being produced. Uh, so, um, uh, it's time for us to support a true healing style of medicine. Uh, and of course, all the environmental uh, implications of that. The, the ice caps are melting, and the yeah. soils are eroding, the water is disappearing all because of our lust for animal flesh. It's driving it all. Well, that can all change with evolution to a plant-based diet, and that's got to be an objective one. Yeah. A recent uh, statistic I read was uh, to support one person on the standard American diet, you would need the equivalent of three football fields of land to be able to sustain one person for one year. Correct. You but know, that same three football fields could support 14 people eating a plant-based diet if you grow plants and feed exactly. it to the people directly. It's inefficient way of oh. using the protein or the type of nutrition that you want to provide yeah, just absolutely. because the demand is so high. You yeah, know, you think that this is what we need to make money, right. you know, or to pay our bills, but it's so inefficient so many different ways. Yeah, and the dishonesty that, you know, that gets in, infiltrated into our awareness that you must eat meat every day, you've got to eat eggs and milk to be healthy. You know, and the opposite is true. Yeah. No need for those. But just to echo what you're saying about the band-aid medicine, um, you know, I grew up with a traditional Chinese mother mm -hmm. and my entire world was prevention right. um, and addressing things before they arrive. So, and, you know, Dr. Dean Ornish was uh, talking last night, uh, including, you know, yourself um, on the panel. And I remember this cartoon he keeps referring to about how uh, two two janitors are yeah. continuously mopping Those are the two floor. Doctors. Yeah, they exactly, exactly. <laughs> two doctors mopping the floor, and no one's bothering to look at the, the faucet the and turn it off. Flowing, really. Yeah. So, yeah. and almost twenty percent of our gross domestic product is attributed, you know, to healthcare costs. You know, so um, mm -hmm. so we got to do something and do something fast. So the root of the land root for doctor is is the same as doctrine is te teaching teaching you know and uh, we are it's our highest role is to teach by our example and by our direction to our patients exactly Absolutely. exactly so you know on your 50 years i've noted you know from your bio that uh, you had a couple of great professors that gave you sage um, advice and mm -hmm. you can 
Correct me if I <laughs> mis misparaphrase or misquoted. Yeah. One of them said, "Quote: uh, People do not get chronic diseases; they earn mm -hmm. them." And then another esteemed, uh, you know, mentor of yours said that 10% mm -hmm. of it is science, science and 90%, you know, common sense. Yeah, exactly. What clicked for you surrounding those quotes? And what would you offer, you know, for the next generation, you know, for you know, sage advice? Well, this happened when I was a second-year medical student and taking the course that we both hold in high regard of physical diagnosis, where you actually learn how to do a physical exam and make a diagnosis. And uh, and I was so despondent and bewildered when a patient had a had a cough, uh, let's say. And uh, the, uh, uh, the, I asked Professor, how do you know what this is? I mean, it could be lung cancer, it could be tuberculosis, it could be a fungal infection, it could be a foreign body, it could be an autoimmune disease, it could be, could be, you know, 15 possibly, how do you tell? Well, how do you get that going well? And he says, look, you know, common things are common. Uh, the, um, and generally, people, don't get diseases, they earn them by what they do. Uh, th this man smokes two packs of cigarettes a day. He's coughing up yellow pus uh, with, with every rattly cough that he's got. Uh, this man's got chronic bronchitis. And, you know, it's 10% it's it's science, you gotta know the histology and the pathology, but it's 90% common sense. What do you think this man's got? Yes, he may have a tumor there, you gotta be uh, uh, diligent in your searching. But common things are common. People get common diseases from what they do commonly. Uh, uh, um, uh, human beings do human things. And, um, and uh, the fact that we bring most of these diseases on ourselves certainly manifested in spades uh, when I realized what food does to us. And, uh, uh, all these etiology unknown diseases. Why do people get obese? What is type 2 diabetes? Why do these arteries clog up? I wish someone had told me it's the food. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, it's what's on your plate. Uh, and I just sculled that out myself. And uh, once I did, it all comes into uh, it all comes into focus there. So, um, so I'm glad he said that you know it's it's mostly common sense as far as making a diagnosis. And people earn these diseases, very few. And yes, there are congenital diseases, and yes, people get poisonings and things, but by and large, uh, these are lifestyle diseases. We're using the term back then, but it's what people do to each other. The body, the body's not capricious. It doesn't wake up, oh, I think I'll develop lupus today. I think I'll develop bronchitis today. There, there, there's a reason disease yeah. happens, and the overwhelming. Uh, reason is, is how we are treating this magnificent body. Yeah, it's the daily, you know, minute by minute decisions yeah, of putting, you know, you know, putting things in your mouth, yeah. choosing not to walk, um, mm -hmm. choosing, you know, poor relationships. So many of these, you know, day to day decisions that we don't think about just accumulate over time. Absolutely, well characterized. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You do a lot of work, you know, currently for the medical educational, um, yeah. you know, curricula um, by giving lectures all over the country. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, you're an amazing, gifted, you know, lecturer. You haven't heard this man speak yet. <laughs> What would you say are the highlights or takeaways when students are listening to you and you've traversed so many great challenges and obstacles and light bulbs and, you know, low points and, you know, what would you 
you know, why would you want them to kind of shortcut all this as opposed to, you know, having them go through it themselves, right? Like instead of, you know, here's a rope to, you know, avoid the mudded, you know, muddy areas, right. you know, I'm just going to give you this rope, right? right. Like why, why is right. the question? Why? Excellent question. <laughs> uh, and the answer was uh, provided by uh, a German philosopher, Goethe, who said, what you know about, you see. Once you know about something, you start seeing it everywhere. And the purpose of my lectures, called What I Wish I Learned in Medical School About Nutrition, is to create that very phenomenon in the minds of these young medics. Once they know, it's the, here's what a fast food meal does to your bloodstream. Here's what it does to your bronchial tubes. Here's what it does to your insulin receptor. Once they see that, <clears throat> you can't unring the bell. You know, the bell's been rung. You know, the, once you look behind the curtain, you can't pretend you don't know what's behind the curtain. You now know. And so my job is to rip that curtain down and say the vast majority of the diseases you're going to spend the majority of your waking professional hours treating, no matter what specialty you go into, internal medicine, general surgery, pediatric, dermatology, GI, you're all going to be dealing with nutrition-based diseases from what your patients are eating. Uh, know that and know that a plant-based diet will reverse these diseases. The concept of disease reversal, I wish someone had told me that type 2 diabetes is a reversible disease. I wish somebody had told me that hypertension is a reversible disease. I spent the first 10, 15 years of my medical career chasing numbers, chasing high blood pressure, chasing high blood sugar, chasing people's weight, and didn't know what to tell them. Now I know what to tell them, to go to a plant-based diet and these numbers get better. And so this is such a powerful tool. And you know well, especially when you're a young medical student, first, second, third year, um, you want those medical, those powerful medical tools in your hand. You want to hear yeah. that pneumonia clear in the lungs. You want to, uh, you want to see that ankle edema go go down as the heart failure clears. Uh, you you want us to always have that healing effect right visible for you. Well, guess what? The most powerful healing effects are produced by having your patients adopt a plant-based diet. Within days of running a whole food, plant-based food stream through the body, the obesity begins to melt away, the arteries relax and open up, the high blood pressure comes down, the joints stop hurting so much, the asthmatic lungs stop wheezing so much, the migraine headaches start improving, uh, the, the inflamed intestinal tract settles down, and they turn into normal, healthy people in front of your eyes. I tell the students, what greater gift could you want for your patients? Why are you going into medicine? Uh, and you know, I got a slide. I said, do you want to heal these patients or don't you? If you really do, then stop nibbling around the edges with more beta blockers and metformin. It's the food. <laughs> Correct that and everything gets better. And so you know, I want to ring that bell loud and clear. And... And again, uh, kudos to people like you and the media folks. Uh, in every first, second, third year med school, med school class now, uh, there's 20 or 30 students. They've seen films like Forks Over Knives. They've seen What the Hell. They've seen Cowspiracy. They've heard podcasts uh, talking about this. So they're up there primed. The, the light's already on. And so to have an experienced clinician come in and say, yes, you can reverse these diseases with a plant-based diet, Oh boy, they, they, <laughs> that's a tool they want. And by the way, you'll get healthier too if you adopt it. And so, uh, so why do I do it? Is to create a 
new generation of nutritionally aware young physicians uh, who know the power of plant-based nutrition uh, to the point where the, uh, the public says, of course my doctor asked me what I'm eating. You know, every visit, you know, we, we talk about the food and how we can do better here. When I, heard, when I hear those words coming out of the lips of patients and doctors, uh, I, can, I can hang on my stethoscope. I, I can call it a career at that point. I've got a little way to go for that, yeah. but, uh, but we'll get there. So why do I do it? Uh, it's to heal the world, to heal our profession, to heal our patients, to heal the animals, uh, to heal the world. Awesome. Awesome. I have a couple of rapid fire. Sure. Favorite vegetable? Oh, broccoli. Broccoli. <laughs> What's your favorite preparation of broccoli? Oh, I, I steam it and uh, just a little balsamic vinegar on it, a lemon juice uh, on broccoli. It uh, really tastes, gets me salivating. I, <laughs> I just love broccoli. Though kale, when it's well done, yeah, you cut it up, uh, it tastes almost meaty in your mouth. Yeah. And it's very satisfying to chew two kale. So kale and broccoli, I'm a big fan. And I love raw carrots. Awesome. If you took a time machine, a DeLorean, you went right. back 50 years yes, to right. your, you know, graduate 1972, you know, right. version of yourself. Yes. What would you say to young Dr. Clapper? Oh my. Knowing what you know now. Knowing what I know now. <laughs> Learn everything you can about nutrition, about the effect of food on the body, because that's going to come in handy. Mm. Mm. Going to have, about every patient you see uh, is going to have a food-related issue there. So, so learn about the effects of food upon the human body. Nice, nice. And uh, last question is: any regrets? Uh, uh, any regrets uh, at this point? What would you have done anything differently, I if anything? Anything differently? Everything unfolded as it should have, even my, uh, the anesthesia training, even though I didn't become an anesthesiologist, it served me so well in my clinical years. Every, every day waking up as a physician has been an honor and a delight, and I wouldn't change a thing, I can say that. <laughs> I could have, should have gotten out of a couple romantic relationships earlier. <laughs> But as far as medicine goes, hey, it led you to you know you know your sweetheart, yeah, right? Exactly, <laughs> led me to my true love. Yeah. Dr. Clapper. Oh, God. thank you so oh, so absolutely. so much. You so hope. Yeah, this is wonderful. You did something good here. Thank you yeah. so 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 much, um, guys. When yeah, I, when you get it out of the yeah, 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 I'll yeah. Put it out on my social media. I will. I will, guys. Thank you so much for watching another episode on this. Actually, we're commemorating, you know, 50 years. This is actually the 100th and 50th episode. And so very, very special gratitude and, you know, um, thanks to you, Dr. K, and, um, you know, to another 50 more. Another 50 more. And some real Let's make it a more vegan world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so okay. much. So much. Okay. All, right. All right. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for watching that episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. If you like this, please like, follow, and subscribe. And please follow us for the latest updates for this season, season five. And if you feel that this was a benefit for someone else, please let them know. And please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and YouTube. And thank you so much again. And we will see you on the next one.